You can open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be covering verses 19 through the end of the chapter. We've been on a bit of a break from the book of Luke, and we are now returning. I had threatened before we took our break from Luke that I was going to do two studies, one on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and the Christian, the other one on um, fables about hell, things people believe that are wrong about hell. This service is none of those, all right? Just want you to know. I want to get that into the open, and that is because the passage that we're covering today, although it deals with the intermediate state, it deals with someone going to torment, that's not what it's about. We will do that in the future. Before we get out of the book of Luke, we are going to have a study that is entitled something like Things Christians Believe About Hell That's Wrong. It'll be something along those lines. And that hell doesn't exist is not one of them. All right? Just so you know. And we'll talk a little bit about, I didn't mean to point at you, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on today. If you're here for the very first time, really glad you're here. Hope you guys are blessed by the time that, we, that, that you spend here with us and that God does speak to you. If you're at a point where you would like to get more involved at the church, we'd love to have you do that. We have places available for people to get involved um, in security, in children's ministry, in, in several other places. One of the best things to do if you would like to get more involved is to fill out a Connect card. Text Calvary Connect to 94000. You're going to get back a link. Click on that link. It's the Connect card. We'll have pastors and leaders that will get in touch with you. Also, at the beginning of next month, right after this service, there will be three connection classes for the first three weeks of next month that are designed to help you know more about our church, more about your own personal gifting that God gives you and where we have available with your skills, your talents on how you can come alongside of us and do the work of the gospel. We'd love to have you be a part of that. The church is more than just attending. It's actually doing the work together to see people given the chance to be given eternity and to be able to minister to people here and now. All right. So with that said, and your Bibles open to uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Uh, I don't need to say we have a great passage in front of us today because they're all seem to be great. But this is really an awesome passage. It is greatly misunderstood. We'll hopefully clear up some of those things today. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is rich, powerful, meaningful, life-changing uh, it, it carries a lot of radical things that would change the way that we live. We thank you that it does not return back void, that it works in the hearts of those who believe, that we can keep ourselves pure by giving heed to your word. We want to do what your word says, and we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is The Rich Man and Lazarus. You have two people who could not be any more different. They die on the same day or close to, and they find themselves in the afterlife. Just that premise tells us how much we can learn from it. Lives live today that end up in the afterlife. There are two men, couldn't be more different. There are two destinies, could not be any more different. And then there are two questions that are asked by the rich man that help us out with application. So that is what we're going to be covering today. There's some misunderstandings about this text, which shouldn't surprise us. There always seems to be. But theologians do argue over whether or not this is a parable. To me, it doesn't matter. 
Is it a parable or is it a real event? But they argue about it because they claim that if it's a parable, then it means that eternal torment or torment is not real. And so there's a, you can imagine there's a lot of fight against that concept. But listen, parables, first of all, this doesn't say it's a parable. It doesn't say, and Jesus told a parable. A lot of parables do, but some don't. So that doesn't mean it's not. Secondly, this is the, if this is a parable, this is the only parable that names somebody. Lazarus, the poor man, is given a name. It's the only parable with a name in it. So that's pretty strong. However, the Bible tells us that at a certain point in Jesus' ministry, he only spoke to the multitudes in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to him. Let me read you that verse because I want you to see it. It's in Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35. In the beginning of his ministry, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plains, his teachings were clear, they were plain, they didn't carry a lot of parables. But then all of a sudden in the middle, when the religious leaders continue to reject, 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 Jesus only spoke in public through parables and didn't go into his plain teaching anymore. Listen to what it says. This is Matthew 34, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables and without a parable he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept silent from the foundations of the world. Now that tells us, first of all, parables are pretty amazing. If they are things that have been kept silent since the foundations of the world, then we want to dive into parables. But also that without parables, he did not speak to him. So I don't have a problem with this being a parable. I also don't have a problem if this is uh, if, if this is a, a real story, a real account of a rich man and a poor man that dies. Now, there's three things that we're going to look at. Like I said, these two lives can be more different, these two destinies and these two questions. That's our outline for our study today. And we want to start with the two lives. We have a rich man who is, is really rare how rich he is. He's so rich, people rarely get this rich. And the poor man is so poor that people rarely get this poor. He's dealing in the extremes here to be able to make his point. So we pick it up in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. We're told three things about him, four things about him, really. One, he's rich. Number two, he wears purple. Now, there were two ways you could make purple dye in the ancient world. You could use a beet root to do it. It would make a purple that was kind of literally a poor man's purple. It faded quickly. It wasn't really rich, deep purple. And then you had another purple that was made from sea snails. Who discovered that you could find sea snails, crush them, get purple out of it? It was a rich purple. It was very expensive to make. First of all, you had to collect a bunch of snails. You had to make your dye. Then when they would dye the robes, they were richer than those that were made with beetroots. They lasted longer. You had to be very wealthy to buy it. It's the color of kings, by the way, purple. And, and so he is dressed in purple. That tells us a lot about him. And I'm sure it's snail purple, not root purple. I'm sure. The second thing it says is fine linen. Now, we got to know that even 150 years ago, clothes were really expensive. You 
probably, if you're a normal person, had just a few pairs of clothes. And that was it. Today, clothes are inexpensive. It's been part of the deflationary period that we went through over the last 20 years, which is gone now. The deflationary period is gone. But we went through it. And if you're like me, me and Kathy are empty nesters. And so my closet creeps to every closet in the house. We have a room that my mom stays in when she comes. And my wife said, where is she going to put her clothes? I don't know. Let her worry about that. I have, I have thin clothes and fat clothes. You guys have that? Yeah, and, and I don't want to get rid of the fat clothes. I'm in, I'm in a thin stage now, but I'm going to get fat again, so I don't want to get rid of them. I don't want to have to buy whole, whole new fat clothes when the, when the time comes, right? So the fact that he has purple and fine linen, which was very expensive. Really fine linen is expensive today. It was super expensive in their day. We're doing some research on it. And who knows, you know, you can't really trace down sources a lot of times when you read things. But I read in a few places that fine linen was as expensive as gold in their day. Who knows if it was? I'm just saying that I found that in a few places. So he, uh, he has purple, he has fine linen, and he fared sumptuously. The word sumptuously here is connected to the word banquet. He lived like it was a banquet every day. He got up every morning and he had a banquet laid before him and, and he lived that way. That was living sumptuously. You couldn't have a guy that would, would li live better. And probably like today, when people do really well financially, they generally get a little prideful about it, maybe even a lot prideful about it. They think, look how rich I am. Look at all those poor people out there. And I've gotten here because of something that I have done. When it may not be you at all. It may just be what God's chosen to do with you. But somehow pride creeps in. That's going to be the lesson of this account or parable. That money stands in the way of getting into heaven. In Luke 8, 25, Jesus said this. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think he's talking about a needle and a camel going through that eye. Because the disciples say later on, who then can be saved? They're like, a camel can't go through, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So if you are rich here today, he's not telling you you can't find the kingdom of God but he's telling you, you're going to have to do a workaround. Your money stands in the way. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and many have become shipwrecked by it. This is a warning for those who would be rich. Now, the, in the United States, if you make $50,000, you, you are in the 1% of the world. Did you, did you know that? You make $50,000, I won't have you raise your hand, ask how much you make. But, but if you make that, and there's a lot of you do, then you are a top 1%. Maybe you even hate 1%. You're like, I hate the 1%. You are the 1%. <laughs> Just because you're not the 1% in the United States, you are the 1% around the world. And so this idea is much more applicable to us than I think we realize. That our money can stand in the way. And you think, certainly not my money. Hey, 
it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. People can love money without even having it, which is a real bummer because they, they don't have the money and they don't get into heaven either because <laughs> the love of money has kept them out. Hebrews 13.5 says this, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you have Christ and he said, lo, I am with you always and he's with you now, then what do you lack? Be content with what you have. One more verse, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said, for he will either hate one and love the other or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now he uses the word mammon, which is in the pantheon of gods. Uh, mammon is the god of wealth. It's translated in many translations as money. You can't serve God and money. If, if your life is just bound in making money, it is going to stand in the way and you are going to end up hating God. If your life is bound in living for God, you're going to end up hating money because you realize that that is something that is false. So this rich man is in a precarious position. But on top of that, we have someone who's a contrast to him. It says in verse 20, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. If this is a parable, it's the only title of the name we've got, but it literally means God is my helper. So you have a guy named God is my helper and he's poor, extremely poor. Not just poor, extremely poor. But God is his helper. Don't think that just because you have God, you're going to be rich. Despite what the, 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 the preacher on TV says. And I realize I am one of those, but I'm not saying that. <laughs> and shut the TV off. Just shut it off. When, when, when someone starts to tell you that. God is my helper, and yet he's impoverished. How impoverished? Number one, he's full of sores, which makes him extremely unclean. You wouldn't touch someone who's full of sores for a lot of reasons. You don't want to get sores. You don't want to touch someone who's got sores. He's unclean. You can't go to the temple after you touch him. Number two, he was laid at the gate. He was laid at the gate of the rich man's house. There was a connection between these two. The rich man wearing purple and fine linen and, and having his banquets every day. And outside is a man who can't walk, who's laid at his gate, who's full of sores. And it says, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table. This doesn't mean he's inside by the table. It means he's outside where they throw the trash away. Dogs also would gather to eat the trash that people would throw away. And so we have the very last thing said about this rich man. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So, which I think is a reference to comfort. The comfort this poor man had was street dogs. <laughs> sounds like some kind of a food. Uh, dogs that are on the streets. Sounds like I want a street dog. So, uh, <laughs> dogs that are on the street who are licking the wounds of this man. That's the only comfort that he's finding. These two guys could not be any more different. The word for beggar here, it says that, that they, uh, there was a certain man, a beggar named Lazarus, is a word that's been applied to Jesus. L listen to what it says in Luke 18, 25. 
For, uh, excuse me, listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Uh, the 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 8, uh, yeah, 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The word for poor there is beggar. Again, you've heard people say Jesus was rich. I heard someone say one time that Mary and Joseph were poor until Jesus was born, and then a king showed up and gave him gold. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, you invite Jesus in your life, people are going to show up and give you gold. Very, very bad teaching, by the way. Very unbiblical. Um, but he became a beggar, is what it says. Jesus said, I have nowhere to lay my head. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To pay taxes, he had to have Peter go catch a fish. It's interesting. I found out here recently that there is a certain kind of bottom feeder in the, um, in the uh, Sea of Galilee which will actually suck up and hold coins and things in their mouth that are thrown into the sea so that there's an actual fish that does that. I can't wait till we teach that section and I could talk about people being like, yeah, I caught a fish with a coin in it. Yes, he did. But he was poor. And then it says that through his poverty, you might become rich. He became a beggar so that you could have it all in the last days or, or in the days to come. So that's the, the contrast of these two men. Now we come to the contrast of their destinies. And their destinies have just as much contrast in them, but they're flipped. It says in verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Three things there. It doesn't say he was buried because poor people in their day weren't buried in individual graves. They were buried in mass graves. So who knows when they would have gotten around to it. They buried people immediately in their day. The climate made it difficult. So they would bury people right away when they would die. And the beggar, it doesn't say was, but it does say that he was carried away by angels. I would, I would gladly give up being buried to be carried away by angels. Amen. Wouldn't you? I, I would gladly. That's where he's at. Angel, he, this beggar wakes up in eternity and there are angels carrying him away to Abraham's bosom. What, what is Abraham's bosom? Does, he, does Abraham have a bosom? That's, you know, I don't like this word because the word's weird. To Abraham's bosom. More modern translations will say he was carried away to Abraham's arms. He was carried away to Abraham's side. But the word is an interesting word that uses as an analogy the idea of refreshing water. So it's the idea of a bay or a stream, finding comfort in a bay or a stream. In other words, we, this could be translated, he was carried away to Abraham's paradise. Abraham is there and the, and the rich man is going to make a reference to water in a moment. So he's in paradise. This is the intermediate state of the Old Testament. This is the intermediate state of Old Testament saints. When an Old Testament saint would die, as far as I can tell, and, and it's possible they would go into the presence of God because they're saved on credit. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him righteous. Abraham was saved by the work of the cross, but it was by credit because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. But here we have this, this place that if he's talking about a real place, then you have a place where people would die and go and be in paradise while they're waiting. 
Theologians call this the intermediate state. What, what do we do in the intermediate state today? When we die before we're resurrected, we are going to be resurrected one day and our body's going to put on incorruptible and immortality and we will we'll be in our bodies again that will be glorified, our glorified bodies. But between now and when, when we die now and between the resurrection, that's the intermediate state. And the Bible says we're in the presence of God. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because he goes to be in the presence of the Lord. All right. But in their day, because Jesus hadn't died yet, there seems to be this place, Abraham's comfort. That's what I like to call it, by the way. This Abraham's comfort seems to be the place that they would go. And Jesus, the Bible says, he descended. He preached to those who were in hell. And then he brought a host of captives out of captivity. So it seems like this part of hell was closed or this part of the grave was closed. Uh, the, the comfort so that all is left is the other part we're going to read about now. Okay. Then it says the rich man also died and was buried. So he's buried, but he's got no angels. Again, I'd rather have angels than burial. He was probably buried with a lot of pomp and circumstance. Probably had one of those big tombs in Jerusalem. You see him. There's the normal looking tombs and then there's big tombs that are like buildings that they buried people in. Probably one of those kind. And it says, and being in torment in Hades, the word Hades here, the grave, Again, we're going to have a whole teaching on misunderstandings people have about hell, but he's in torment. The Bible says, talking about this torment, some are going to be beaten with few stripes and some are going to be beaten with many stripes. The Bible says that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum and Corazon in the day of judgment. Capernaum and Corazon were two cities that were the headquarters of Jesus's personal ministry in the Galilee. So God does not treat everybody the same. When you get into heaven, not everybody's treated the same. Heaven is different for everybody for, for various reasons. When you go to hell, hell is different for everybody because God's just. This is part of the reason that I want to talk about the misunderstandings about hell. So some people are beaten with few stripes. It doesn't mean they're not beaten through eternity with few stripes. I'm not talking about uh, annihilation or universalism. Okay, I don't believe either of those. And people will say to me, well, you're teaching people that if they're a pretty good person here, that they're going to die and go to, to torment, but they're only going to be beaten with the few stripes throughout eternity. So you're tempting people to not live with Jesus. I don't think I am. I, I, I hear your argument, but I don't think I am. I, I think it's much more of a comfort to know that God does what's fair and, and that the, the torment that God gives to people will be based on what they did. And I realize how wicked we are. People will say, you don't understand how wicked we are. Yeah, I do. Yes, I do. I do, I do, I do. I promise you, I do. We are, especially compared to God. You might be a good person human standard wise, but you are not a good person compared to God. In God, there's no shifting of shadows. The human heart is dark. Just the human heart of a, just a regular person is dark, but God's got no shadows in him at all. I understand that. Nevertheless, Jesus said, some will be beaten with few and some will be beaten with many. I just want to point that out because, well, may give you some, some ammunition when someone says, I can't serve a God who's going to send people to hell. It's like, well, do you know that hell is different for everybody? That's my response when someone tells me that. That's how I respond. All right, so um, Abraham's in torment in Hades. Uh, he, lift up his, he lifts up his eyes 
and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So we're going to learn there's a great gulf between them. One side is a paradise and the other side is torment. Those who don't know God are in torment. Those who do know God are in comfort. This is what happens after life for those who know him. Doesn't matter what you experience here. You may have been a beggar, dogs licking your sword, but you are going to be in comfort if you know God. So in verse 24, we get the two requests. We've had the two different men. We've had the two different destinies. Now we have two requests that come from the rich man, both of them. Then he cried out and said, he sees Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to, that he may dip uh, the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. For I am in torment in this flame. Now we learn there's flames there. Uh, three things about that Lazarus sees about the poor man. Number one, he still sees him as his lackey. He still sees him as a servant. He believes that because he was rich that he's superior. So send, send Lazarus over here that he can dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue. That's what he's good for. That's who he is. One thing that getting money does is make you feel superior. That's one of the reasons it's hard for you to get saved when you have money because you think you're superior. But in reality, you're not. And the second thing is, is that he's no longer got sores. How do I, it doesn't say that, but how do I know that? Because there's no way that that rich man would say, let him dip his hand in the water and touch my tongue if this guy had sores. He would be like, mm, no, I'll just go ahead and be thirsty. He also is no longer lame. He had to be laid at the gate. But now he says, send him over here. So he sees Lazarus healed and no longer lame. The Bible tells us in Revelation, when it describes heaven in one place, it describes heaven by what's not there. There are no more tears. There is no more sorrow. There is no more pain. And there is no more suffering. And there is no more death. This is the comfort that Lazarus finds himself in. And he says, I am in, in, in this flame. Now, Abraham gives him this response. Abraham said to him, son, remember, and notice that Abraham calls him son. Uh, Jesus said to the, to the scribes and Pharisees, don't think that you're going to go to the end of the kingdom of God because you are the descendants of Abraham. So here we have a descendant of Abraham who is in torment and it's final. There's a finality to it. This is what Abraham says. But he said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So they could see back and forth, but there was no way to travel back and forth. And Abraham talks about the finality of the afterlife. The Bible says it is appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. Somehow we get the idea that we have a lot of time. Somehow we feel like I'll take care of things later. I'll give my Christ, my life to Christ. Uh, when I was a teenager and I would witness to people, other teenagers would say, when I get married, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. In fact, there was a guy who was just a few months away from being married. And when I witnessed to him, and I, I used prophecy to do it, and he said to me, well, let me ask you a question. If I get married, do I have to give up sex? And I said, I mean, if I get... If, if you get married, you have to give up sex. <laughs> Happens. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
<laughs> that was the absolute wrong thing to say. All right. All right. So he said, if I get saved, do I have to give up sex? And I said, yes. And he said, well, then I'll wait till I get married. He was going to be married in a few months. I witnessed to him again after he got married and he said, I'm going to still wait a while. It wasn't that he didn't believe me. It was that he just had this concept as I'm going to wait. You, you can wait, but you are rolling the dice to some degree because none of us knows how long that we're going to be here, especially in these days that we are living. A friend of mine, pastor of Maranatha Chapel in San Diego, Ray Bentley, uh, 60, just a few years older than me. I won't tell you how old he was. He is 64, just a few years older than me. And um, he went to be with the Lord. Uh, died of COVID. We are, we, are living in a, we are living in a time where we just don't know. And that just makes it more urgent. It doesn't mean we, it's always been the same. People die every day. And there's a finality to it. When you die and you find yourself in torment, you are in torment. And there's no way out. That's, that's what this rich man has. And if there's anything that this Bible teaches us about hell, it's that it's final. But so is, so is Lazarus. So he says, has a second question. So the first question really kind of gets that you can't go back and forth and, hey, in your life you had good things and now here's, here you are. And it's certainly not telling us that, that money takes us to heaven or money doesn't take us to heaven. It's that I think that the point that, that Lazarus, that, that Abraham is making here is that in your life, you had all the good you're going to receive. And now that you've died without Christ, you don't, you're, you're, you don't get that good anymore. You've had all the good you're going to receive. Lazarus in his life had all the bad he was ever going to receive. But now he dies and he's in comfort and he will not have any more bad. I think that's the point that's being made. It doesn't mean that you don't need to receive Jesus as your Savior. He's not dealing with that. And I'll show you that in the end of this study. I want to show you context. So then in verse 27, he has a second request. Uh, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. He still wants, you know, the Lazarus to do his work. Then don't, don't send him over here. Then send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Now he's trying anything that he can do to communicate with those that are still alive that you guys need to change the way that you're living. I am always tempted when I'm doing a funeral of someone who doesn't know Christ. I don't do it. But to say, if he could talk to you today, what would he say? If someone could speak from the afterlife, and tell you, what would they say? And for this man, it was send Lazarus so they don't come to this place. Again, there's a finality. It's a place that we don't want to go to. We need to deal with it here. He, he, he says then, unless they also come to this place, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes uh, to them from the dead, they will repent. So he's saying, I, I want you to take this sign to them, one raised from the dead, because then they'll repent. But they have Moses and the prophets. That's the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Moses writing the first five books, the prophets being the rest of it. There's some history books that are in there, but they would make, use the term as an idiom, the law and the prophets. 
Moses and the prophets. That's the entirety of Scripture. They have Scripture. In other words, God has reached down into mankind with His Word. And if you reject that, you say, well, it's not enough. I need more. Well, God's not, not, God's not obligated to give you more. And within the Word of God is this incredible thing called prophecy where He tells the future. He tells things that happen before they happen. And people say that's not enough. David Hume, a deceased atheist, said, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. So when someone tells you that, just say, thank you, David Hume. Just tell them you know where it's from. Because people like to say things like that and take, kind of take credit for it. My response is, you don't get to choose the evidence. You have extraordinary evidence. You just choose not to believe it. And we are not saved by certainty. We are not saved by confidence. The Bible does not say you are saved by confidence in the grace of God. By certainty, you're saved by faith. It's a reasonable faith. Because it's not a leap into the dark, it's a leap into the light because we have the Old Testament which tells us the future. We have Israel as a nation again today and God said in the last days that Israel would be a nation. Jerusalem is controlled by the Jews again. The Bible says that Jerusalem would be, Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Scriptures being fulfilled right in front of our eyes and people are putting blinders on and fingers in their ears. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. And God is fulfilling Scripture right in front of them. And they're saying, I want a sign in heaven. I want God to show me something. I want Him to give me evidence. God's going to give you the evidence He already gave you. He gets to choose it. And you say, well, I have doubts. That's okay. You can doubt and still believe. You, you, that's not certainty. You know, confidence and faith are not the same thing. When you say, I believe God's word, Billy Graham in his biography talks about having some doubts and that he came to a place where he brought his Bible before God, went into a, a forest to pray, found a tree that had been cut down, laid his Bible on the stump and said, God, I don't know that I can answer every question, but I believe this is your word and I will live it. And God used Billy Graham in a way that is as great as, as anyone that he's ever used. And his poor prayer and commitment was, I don't understand it all. You can have doubts, but you've got to believe. And God's given you the evidence to believe. And it is sufficient because we're living in those. You know, I was looking at, um, I think it's Matthew 24, 12. Lawlessness in the last days, lawlessness will abound. We're living in a lawless time. And we're not just talking about the United States. You might think that there's lawlessness in cities in the United States. Every, I have no evidence for this. I want to make sure I'm honest, right? So sometimes we preachers throw out things. I, the, the vast majority of cities in the United States have a shortage of police officers. Hiring good police officers is tough. I um, played golf with someone who was in the police department in Portland and, um, or Seattle, Seattle, I guess. Um, had made it up high in the ranks. And I asked him, if you had to hire two or 300 police officers that were good quality police officers, how long would that take? And he said, a long time. And he said, and secondly, you wouldn't know that they weren't good hires until two or three years into it. That's when the problems begin to arise when you don't take your time to hire really good police officers. Well, lawlessness is not just happening in the United States, it's happening all around the world. It's not a phenomenon here. And again, the Bible says we will have lawlessness in the last days. 
We are just seeing all of these prophecies come to pass. And it ought to tell us of the urgency of making sure our life is right. So he says, they have Moses and the prophets and let them hear from them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes back from the dead, they will repent. Well, Jesus did rise from the dead. And there is evidence for his resurrection. And you might say, well, I don't believe that. I don't think I would believe the evidence for his resurrection. Have you looked at it? Go, just go and, and look up, um, go to YouTube and look up evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Uh, watch William Lane Craig. Um, Mike Winger has some great stuff on it. Just look for some videos from these guys who are good apologists and you'll be amazed how much evidence there is that that tomb was empty. I, I don't know. You might not be able to go, well, it was resurrected, but the tomb was empty. And there's some incredible evidence for it. It's already there. So my response to David Hume, if I could respond to him, the deceased atheist is, God's already given us extraordinary evidence. You just ignored it. It wasn't good enough for you. You wanted more. But you don't get to set that. God said it already. I am God. He said, there is no other. I am God. There is none like me who will tell you the things that happen before they do. God has established what his calling card is. This is my calling card. I've told you in the Bible things that are going to happen before they do. The Bible said Israel will be a nation in the last days. They were not a nation in 1947. In 1948, they were. Israel was not under Israeli control in 1966, but it was in 1967. All of these things are signs that we can come back and look at the Word of God. And he says that um, they'll repent, but his response was, even if they hear... Uh, uh, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one is raised from the dead. It's not that they wouldn't believe if somebody is raised from the dead. It's that if they don't believe Moses and the prophets. In other words, if they've studied the scriptures and then turned down that incredible evidence, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. That's pretty strong, isn't it? He's saying we ought to know what that evidence is. And Jesus raised a different Lazarus from the dead. And they tried, the religious leaders who knew Moses and the prophets tried to kill him. They thought, let's get rid of the evidence. Let's just kill Lazarus. But you just, you're going to try, you're going to, that, that's how devoted they were to not truly following the Lord. Now, a couple points in application. Number one, this whole parable is not about the afterlife. It certainly foreshadows it. And it certainly is worth talking about. But it's about money, things, stuff, standing in the way of you getting into heaven. That Jesus' statement, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And so all of us here want to evaluate, make sure that we're at a place where we, uh, where we don't allow money and stuff to block us from entering into heaven. Listen to what Jesus said just a few verses before this parable. This is Luke 16, same chapter, verses 14 and 15. We started reading today in verse 19. It's the same context. It's the same place. Okay? Listen to what it says. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. And then 
Three verses later, he tells this account or parable. That's what it's about. What is highly esteemed among men? What is highly esteemed among men? Gold, big bank accounts, money, Dogecoin. That was a joke. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, whatever. Okay? It's highly, but to God, it's an abomination because those things cannot really answer. And, and in fact, Jesus said they could be gone in a moment. Rust and moth can come in and destroy because clothes were expensive. Moth could come in and eat them. And, and um, the, you, you could, you know, your treasure could be stolen. You say, well, I got mine in a bank account. I got mine in, um, in fidelity. My, all of my retirement, all of my stuff, it's in TD Ameritrade. It's in Charles Schwab. I'm okay. What, what, what if the internet went down? What if the internet around the world went down? And you had no access to your money. You couldn't go in and pay bills from your money. You say, you're scaring me, Robert. I'm scaring myself. <laughs> but that was the point of Jesus. You think you can, you, th you really think it's so far-fetched that the internet couldn't shut down? You really think that? Electricity is that question these days. Not, maybe not in the United States, but around the world it is. So Jesus' words are just as valid today. Don't stack up treasure where it can be taken away from you, but stack up your treasures in heaven. And if you are not right with him today, then get right with him today. If you don't have, if, if you were to die today and you wouldn't be carried by angels into paradise, then make sure that that would happen. Because Jesus said, call out and I will answer you. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this parable. It really is very profound and very powerful and so many good lessons. And we know that even though it's not about hell or how to get into heaven and stay out of hell, it's about money keeping people out of, of hell or the lack of money making it easier to go into heaven. But Lord, we do pray that we would be able to evaluate and make sure that we call out upon your name to be able to be carried by angels to you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.